Hello and welcome to another mini-sode. Today, we're doing a case study of sorts, unpacking the process and decision-making behind our recent merger of two rural health clinics. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. So, JJ, on last week's episode, we talked with Letitia Fetcher from the Girard Group about change management. And we did reference in that episode what we recently did when we had to merge two of our rural health clinics into one um, in that kind of discussion about change management. And we didn't have a ton of time when we did that. Uh, so we sort of explained what happened and what we did and then asked Letitia to give us feedback on how well we did, considering she does this type of strategic communication all the time with her clients. And so she gave us a good report and then we had to move on and wrap up pretty quickly. So it kind of felt like it was a, hey, here's what we did. Tell us how great we are type of deal. Um, So we want to expand on that a little bit because the goal really was to learn from the experience that we've had and to talk about something that is tough to talk about and not necessarily what healthcare administration wants to talk about publicly, which is the process and decision making behind having to close or merge or combine operations and services due to difficult financial circumstances that we know are plaguing the healthcare industry right now, um, worse than, you know, I think anyone Mm -hmm. can imagine in Mm -hmm. our history. Um, So today we're going to talk a little bit about that in more depth and unpack that more as a case study to really look at this issue, because we know we're not the only rural healthcare facility right now that's dealing with this type of difficult decision-making within our communities that we serve. Um, So to start, let's go through the evolution sort of of our clinic in Litchfield. So JJ, can you walk us through that? Um, You know, how did it start? How were things going? What did we do to try to improve it? And why did we ultimately still have to combine it with another clinic? Well, first of all, just uh, let's let's go back a little further. Uh, Anytime we want to start a new business, whether it's a venture, a model, a joint venture, whatever it is, uh, we we complete and conduct what's called a um, pro forma. The pro forma is an opportunity for us to look at revenue, cost, um, what and when you consider all of those things, you're also looking at the external and internal environment. So external environment is, would the community support it? What is the payer mix in that community? Is it all Medicaid? Is it partial Medicaid, partial commercial? And what is that percentage? Um, so that has to be taken into consideration, Rachel, because as we know, the cost of doing business today over the last six years has really changed as it relates to insurance reimbursement. Right. And Medicaid, historically, Medicaid does not cover cost. Um, for for providing the services. It, it, it gets right. right under the cost. Where you make your money or at least enough to cover your losses is through commercial insurance. So you have to make sure that your mm-hmm. payer mix in that community is a mix of both Medicaid and commercial insurance. You build your performa. Uh, you you factor in salary, equipment, overhead for building expense. We did all of that. And we knew that it was going to be close to a break-even. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we understood that it was important to get this out to our community and to really take from the hospital to make sure that we get individuals in their quote-unquote backyard. Um, so, you know, when, one of the things that we look at are, all right, you, you get a sustainable model in place. You hire the provider, which is typically an advanced practice provider. Um, you hire the medical assistant and a scheduler and an individual medical office receptionist. And what you do is you put your model together, you launch your clinic, and then 
prior to that is all the work that you get to do, which is advertising, knocking on doors, flyers, uh, communicating to community leaders, and the list goes on and on. And then it's ever going because what you want to do is notify the community and surrounding area, your what we call a catchment of patients with the information that there's a clinic now in their backyard. And then in some of that, it's really redirecting the habits and patterns um, where they receive their healthcare delivery right now, uh, and you want to redirect them to your clinic. So all of that having been said, we did all the homework. We understood that we were taking the gamble of a potential, uh, what we would call, uh, what we'd call break even. And going into it, you know, your high hopes are that you will even out your Medicaid and that you will have commercial insurance. All of that said, um, we got into it and within about two years, we started to notice a trend mm-hmm. uh, and we follow that trend very closely. Well, and I don't know if you remember this, JJ, but when I first started, one of the first things we did was start looking at the Litchfield Clinic from a marketing perspective because it was struggling. It was started in February of 2018. Um, so within a year and a half, we were really looking at that really closely and trying to figure out how do we make this work? You know, and that is something that it's been a passion of mine, as you know, to try to go to our communities uh, where transportation doesn't exist countywide in uh, where resources are very limited for the community member and really put something in their backyard so it's convenient for them. And then they have access to health care. We think that's very, very important. And so, you know, my commitment was I wanted to do this, which is why we spent several years. Mm-hmm. We used to make this decision overnight. Several right. years. It was almost four years exactly from when I started to when we made this final decision. Absolutely. And so so we gave it a lot of time to really try to work every solution we could come up with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we did. And we spent a great deal of our time uh, reviewing, could we stay open later? Well, we tried that. Um, could we open earlier? Okay. We tried that. Uh, what would happen if we mix the staffing model and could we share staff and reduce some of the cost? Okay. We tried that. Um, what would happen if we put the um, advanced practice provider uh, in and then we would just bring the medical director in maybe once a week? And we tried that. And it really all came down to the fact that the payers in that community, in other words, the individuals who what type of insurance they have, was high Medicaid and the volume that we needed to make or break budget never, ever came to fruition. Mm -hmm. And we have to talk about that. Some people say to me, oh, it's all about the dollar. Well, at the end of the day, we do have to weigh our business decisions because I do know that in certain other areas, such as psychiatric care or obstetrics and other areas in rural hospitals, those are losses. And you can't have every program as a loss. Um, Some you can have loss leaders. You know, if you run a program, uh, and and you want to try to, um, let's say, you're running an angio screen program, you're running a testing program, and you know that that's going to cost you, but on the on the return of that, you're getting increase in other services at your hospital. That that didn't happen. You know, we looked at downstream revenue, we call it, Rachel, and we just didn't mm-hmm. see it. In other words, not just getting that office visit for a Medicaid reimbursement of $65, what you anticipate is that they're going to use your services for blood draw, x-ray, they're going to come in for general surgery, they're going to do things of that nature. We did not see that happen. We were never able to catch that. And in part... Well, and part of it's the location, right? Because that clinic was 
it's in our county, but it's situated where it's pretty much equidistant from three different hospitals. So naturally, you're going to see more of a split with where folks are going for their ancillary services just by location. And so I think we just were never able to shift that quite enough. Correct. And and we tried, right? I mean, we tried. We tried the shift. We tried all of those things. Uh, we would try and, you know, incorporate things like, all right, can we do um, Department of Transportation testing? Can we do other right. things? Occupational medicine. Yeah. And it just, you know, we tr- we gave it every effort, every which way to try to sustain that clinic in that area. But it just really came down to what were the ancillary revenues coming out of there? Where were we catching the patient, you know, after that visit? Where were they getting their prescription filled uh, in all of those things? And we just, it, unfortunately, the model was not going to be able to be sustained. Mm-hmm. Now, we didn't want to leave that community, you know, obviously devastated. And one of the things that we looked at before making the decision is that they already had providers in the area. Right. Um, so, you know, we have been in communities before where we are it and we need to, yeah. we have to make it work. Um, but this was a community in which there were two other providers. We weren't the only, right. Yeah. We, we we were very concerned about not wanting to leave a community with absolutely nothing. Correct. And, and so knowing that it's not an excuse, but it was an opportunity for us to say, okay, if we were to back out, there's still going to be services for that population. Mm-hmm. And we did that. And uh, unfortunately, um, we had to divest that clinic. We had to shut that clinic down. Um, the good news is that we, not too far from there, uh, were able in one of our other communities to redirect staff, uh, redirect the advanced practice provider, um, who, by the way, is a rock star, did mm-hmm. a fantastic job. Uh, she w- Well, and I think that's important to point out, though, too, JJ, because one of the, the changes we saw you know, probably three years ago with that clinic was that the volumes did increase significantly because we had that provider out there who just patients love her, patients follow her. I mean, she is a rock star. And even with those that increase in volume and pretty much getting that clinic to capacity, the numbers still just didn't work. Um, But that also demonstrates the importance of we didn't want to just say, we're closing this clinic and sorry to you folks who worked here, you no longer have jobs. We took all the staff and all the resources from that clinic and pulled them into another clinic. Absolutely. So there was no layoffs, no terminations, nothing of that nature. Right. And that provider who you were used to seeing was redirected into a community down the road where you could go still see that provider. Understanding right. that there's still complexities of transportation, we get that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the decision of divesting a service incorporates a lot of decision-making. It's a decision tree. Um, You look at how is this going to impact the health outcomes in that community? You know, what type of services are we taking away that we can add somewhere else where they will still receive some type of services? And and in consideration of that, we we also consider, okay, if it's transportation, how do we get them to the new place? And we did that. We actually signed an agreement with a local company who was able to give rides and at no cost to the patient. So not just saying, oh, we tried it. We're walking away. Leave everybody high and dry. Terminate people. Lay them off and tell the community, oh, sorry, we didn't do that. Now, a lot of what we're reading today in the the, uh, journals and the articles and online reports is that there are some hospitals, Rachel, that are just simply doing that. There's shutting the doors. They're done. With very They're little notice away. to the community. I mean, yeah, it's it's hard to watch. Yeah, it is very hard to watch. Um, 
so at the end of the day, uh, you know, we wanted to make sure that all those decisions in the decision tree were completely vetted out and that the decision that we make doesn't limit the availability of services, um, but that it would give choices for the patients in that community. And we did that. And it's tough. You know, it's it's when you start something that you have a passion and you dream about. Litchfield was always my project. You know, I've got a few of mm-hmm. them, and I, I really hated to see us walk away from it. But it does come down to a business operations uh, at some point. It just does. Right. And that's really, that's the sustainability issue with rural health, right, is if it's ultimately not going to be sustainable and we have to kind of take the path of least resistance, if you will, in order to create sustainability within our organization as a whole, house-wide, right, across the board, hospital, other clinics, everything like that. Sometimes these difficult decisions have to be made. um, And I think the other thing that's important to point out is that as we did this, we were already kind of game planning what other opportunities could we have to continue to serve this community in one way or another and to keep that relationship with this community. So we have been working on setting up a mobile clinic. We're still in the process of being able to do that. But that way we will still be able to have a presence in that community. Um, The good news is that we're seeing quite a few of, of the vast majority of the patients who were going to that clinic have followed this excellent provider to this other location Um, But JJ, can you talk a little bit about the rural health clinic designation and the timing of that and how that kind of played into the sustainability issue in Litchfield compared to moving this provider to reading to another location? Yeah. So, you know, there's when when you look at certain designations, when we look at a designation called RHC, rural health clinic, um, the government gives certain what we call uplifts. Uh, think of it like mm-hmm. this. Uh, if the government gave us $65 to see a Medicaid patient, they know it's an underserved area, they may give you $70. It doesn't cover mm-hmm. all the costs. It'll help cover some of those costs. Um, and unfortunately, with the government, uh, there's all kinds of programs, right? And so a program year that would have started a decade ago has changed over the years. And the uplifts, right. because it's the government, go down every year lower and lower. Mm -hmm. But you grandfathered, which means whatever you had 15 years ago, grandfathered at that rate, which is a higher rate than what you get today. And so to start that RHC in that community today is going to have a lower uplift, lower reimbursement than, let's say, some other clinic such as Reading Hills Health and Wellness, which started, let's say, two decades ago, which it did uh, Mm -hmm. in the Reading Clinic. And so the the money that we receive, the reimbursement from the government under Medicaid, um, again, it has to be in those areas that an RHC is designated. How is a rural health clinic designated? Underserved area for healthcare, right. certain populations, income, all those things are factored in. You get the designation. It's a lengthy process. You have to go through accreditation. You have to go through inspections, audits. The list goes on, but they lock you in at that rate. It doesn't matter what the government right. does 10 years later, they lock you in at that rate. And so right. we knew that uh, the rate in reading was higher, as was the rate at HHW, than the rate in Litchfield, because Litchfield came online many years after reading did. Mm-hmm. So for us, getting that additional coverage and that what we call uplift 
helped make budget, which means that we can right. afford to be able to deliver those services in that respective community. And Rachel, this and is what's happening purpose, to the industry. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's the whole purpose of rural health clinics is to make primary care clinics sustainable in rural communities that are underserved and have way too high of a ratio of, you know, population to primary care providers. Um, but what we experienced in our in the situation in Litchfield was that that still was just not enough to make it work and and to make it go. Um, but now, you know, in reading, it is much more sustainable because that rate is higher. It's what it was earlier when um, in the process of that rural health clinic um, program having been established. Um, so that gave us the opportunity to uh, move that provider over there, make that work uh, in a different location. Because I don't want people to hear, okay, well, you just moved them somewhere else. Why is it sustainable there as opposed to where you were before? But it really is all about the reimbursement and when that clinic became an RHC versus when the the other one did, Litchfield. So um, with that, as we wrap this up, JJ, from an administrative perspective for you, what are some of the lessons learned through this process? You know, I, I, I'm going to, you know, this isn't hubris. This isn't me uh, patting myself or you on the back. I kept, the, the lessons are when you have to go through this, and you will, if you're listening today and you're a leader, uh, you're going to go through this. And the question is, in what manner do you go about it? How are you going to get the message communicated? And what steps did you take to divest it? And I, I guess for me, the lessons learned is I feel we did it the right way. Mm-hmm. And it was it was teamwork. It was bringing the, the chief financial officer together, you, the director of communication, bringing the clinics director together, the manager, the physician, um, all of those conversations happening in a lot of communication. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say I would do it any different. I, I, I did the analysis mm-hmm. knowing that we were going into it, the potential of breaking even. And if we were going to lose, uh, could it could you sustain it over a year? But when you look long term for losses, it's just not viable. I would do it over again. I would I would start a clinic. I'd invest the money uh, to try to make it work because I believe in pushing and fighting for something uh, for our patients and their and their families and our communities. So uh, lessons learned, I guess maybe it's more like what advice could I give? I would give advice that if you are going to divest a program, uh, don't do it hastily. Uh, look at where those patients are going to go. Let's say, for example, out of curiosity, you're going to shut an obstetrics program down. If you're going to close an OB program in a community, in a rural community, you better make sure that access is really, really close, like within five, right. 10 minutes. Right. Because if not, an abruption, uh, a, a major C-section, things that are needed are life and death for patients. And that's the decision that you're making. When you close down something and you're diverting patients 30, 40, 50 minutes away, you are making life and death decisions. Um, and that's mm-hmm. going to be based on the economy and money. And that you better back off if you're uh, losing money as an organization overall. And let's say you don't have reserves or or, or any type of uh, funding available, um, then I understand you have to make those tough decisions. But when you're an organization and you're diverting uh, patients 40, 50 minutes away and you're sitting on cash uh, and you're just closing it because it's not convenient for you or you can't find the staff, um, you better be making better decisions than that because we're talking about life and death decisions for patients and their families. And so I would just give caution to those organizations as you're looking at closing a practice um, a service line. What are the services that are available in the remote area? Um, what are the driving distances? What are the barriers for individuals to get to those appointments? And if you're going to 
offset that population to another clinic and going to uh, divert them, can that next clinic have the volume capacity uh, to meet that volume? So all of those things, again, I would say maybe not necessarily lessons learned, but what, what, what advice would I give? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I would say from a communications perspective, what I think was most important, and we honestly kind of have the benefit of having seen a clinic in a somewhat nearby community close uh, maybe six months before we had made this decision, um, and that did not go well. So within that community relationship-wise, you know, all of that stuff. So we kind of had the opportunity, we had the hindsight of that organization. (laughs) So um, we were able to see what had happened in that previous situation. And it helped us, I think, to think through how do we do this differently from a communication perspective um, and some, maybe avoid some of the pitfalls that we're seeing there. And I think the probably the two biggest things that I think are important about the messaging for us was one, being specific in our transparency, which was that the clinic was at capacity, but the numbers didn't work. And we were very specific and direct about that in our communications instead of just saying, it's not sustainable no. or... Rural, it's hard to provide care in rural health and, you know, rural primary care clinics across the country have to close in rural communities because of the difficulties. We were very specific in what was the issue with this clinic, why wasn't it working, um, but also to be clear that it wasn't the fault of the staff, it wasn't the fault of the provider. They were rocking and rolling out there every day, every day. but it didn't mean that the numbers were going to work, right? That is true. So that was number one, be specific in the transparency. And then number two is be empathetic because what I think often happens in these situations is that the messaging, it can have like a very Pollyanna sort of vibe to it. And it's all about, oh, we're so excited for you to come to this new place. It's going to be so great mm-hmm. without acknowledging like, we know this is not good news for everybody. We oh, yeah. feel like there it's the best decision we can make and we're excited about the next step of what we are going to be able to still offer you and that we hope you have a good experience there as well. Mm-hmm. But we know that this is not exciting in general for Absolutely. a lot of folks and Absolutely. and we empathize with that and and we didn't want to come off as, you know, well we're closing this clinic but it's actually a good thing, right? right? Because we don't want to invalidate the discomfort and the disappointment that we knew there was going to be in that community, right? We have to acknowledge that. Um, And I think that made a big difference too for folks. And I still honestly am a little surprised that we didn't see more public backlash than we Mm -hmm. did, but I'm grateful for that. I really am. I I think think that community is very um, understanding, but also they knew that that provider was still going to be accessible to them in a different location and that if transportation was an issue, we were going to help bridge that gap. Um, so I think it it was less inconvenient because we didn't pull the rug and we didn't do it abruptly and we didn't do it without communication. And Rachel, the last thing I want to say is when you enter some type of situation where you have to divest, shut down, shutter the doors, whatever it is, um, it is critical to have a communication tool and device uh, and leader. And and I want to say, truly, you know, 95% of that message would not have been sent out uh, and understood and crafted in such a manner that was important in honesty, integrity without you. And I, I would say, lessons learned for those listening, make sure your communications director uh, whoever that person is, whether whether it's a consultant or a full-time person, 
is truly understanding like you were um, and knew what the collateral damage was necessary as well as um, how to message that in 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 a genuine sense uh, and also in a caring and compassionate sense uh, and not dismiss us. And, and so I want to appreciate the work that you did with it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So all around us, healthcare is struggling. And I would encourage our listeners, you know, as decisions like this are made, and you may not understand them, uh, you know, reach out to your local hospital. You know, I took emails uh, for other other divestments that we've done. I've uh, answered phone calls. Uh, I've been out in front of the public. And I would just encourage, you know, our listeners, if you have to make those tough decisions, be upfront, be honest, and 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 give your community the answers that they need. Uh, and, and remain encouraged. You can get so discouraged when you have to shut a service down because you take it personally. I did. And you think, oh, my leadership in this, would this have happened if this was here? Don't beat yourself up. Uh, it is business. It's what we have to do. It's the cost of business. It's the function of business. Um, you you really have to look at it in the lens of, you know, how do we redirect those resources so that the hospital can can serve the community long term? And that just may be one of the strategies necessary to do it. Thank you for joining us for today's mini-sode. If you have a topic or issue you want us to cover on a future mini-sode, shoot us an email at marketing at hillsdalehospital.com. You can also find Hillsdale Hospital on Facebook and Instagram. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. You can also find us now on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel's at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow our podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.